0: I'm Jorge Salazar, reporting on SC16 in Salt Lake City, the 28th annual International Conference for High-Performance Computing, Networking, Storage, and Analysis. The event showcases the latest in supercomputing to advance scientific discovery, research, education, and commerce. Computer hardware speeds have grown exponentially for the past 50 years. We call this Moore's Law, but we haven't seen a Moore's Law for software. The reason for that is a lack of communication between hardware developers and the users trying to solve problems in fields like social networking, cancer modeling, personalized medicine, or designing the next generation battery for electrical storage. That's according to Sadasivan Shankar of the John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard University. Dr. Shankar proposes a new paradigm in which the software applications should be part of the design of new computer architectures. He calls this paradigm co-design 3.0, and Shankar was invited to speak about it at SC16. On the phone to tell us more about it is Sadasivan Shankar. Dr. Shankar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jorge, for uh, inviting me to be on the podcast. Now tell us, what is co-design 3.0? Co-design, uh, by its definition, means doing more
1: multiple things related to design together at the same time. This is roughly a version number that we came up with to distinguish it from the previous two co-designs. So co-design one is what I would call in which the architecture, the design, and software optimization for any application, are done very serially. That is, you actually select an architecture, then do a micro, any micro architecture, and then you do the design on it. And then, after you do the design, then you do the software emulation. You make the microprocessor and the other hardware, including the interconnects, the memory, the storage. And then the software is optimized to run on it. If you think about it, each of these steps that I mentioned are done serially in co-design one. In co-design two, part of which is in the exascale computing project from Department of Energy, there is a more of an effort to do these things together. For example, the high-performance scientific computing needed by the national labs typically are done or are driving what the hardware platform ought to be. So rather than waiting for the hardware platform to come to them before doing the software, the national labs, at least the exascale computing activities, are supposed to find the hardware and put forth the requirements of what the ideal hardware for their kind of software should be. So that is what I would call co-design two. And co-design three is something taking it to its logical conclusion in which all of these are done around the same time that an application person is able to take a platform that is ideal for his or her case, find out what software is needed for it and what algorithms are needed, and then put them together like a Lego block for their application and a user like myself would be putting the lego blocks in a different way than a user like yourself so in a way under the same roof in principle we should be able to put together a given set of lego blocks together in different ways and that is what i would call co-design three
0: is there an example for co-design three It is happening. Actually, in fact, it is happening
1: in multiple ways. It is starting to sprout organically. One example of that I would say is the D.E. Shaw Research, which is essentially the Anton supercomputer was put together by D.E. Shaw Research to do one specific application, molecular dynamics. So they use an FPGA chip and they essentially has optimized the hardware, the architecture, the algorithm, and software for molecular dynamics. That I would give you is one example. The other example is cloud vendors like Amazon and Facebook are starting to define what the architecture should be and what the hardware should be for doing all of these together the third example is Apple. Apple is essentially doing the hardware, the architecture, and the software, the operating system all together. So all these are co-designed, and they are being done in different pockets.
0: What kinds of problems does co-design 3 address, and what advantages does it bring? Two things. Let's kind of take one specific example here. The specific example of Anton,
1: an Anton 2 supercomputer that has been designed by D.E. Shaw Research. It specifically helps solve protein folding problems up to milliseconds, which cannot be done anywhere else. So this is relatively a new activity in which they are, the proteins generally are very complex organic molecules, macromolecules. And their folding time typically is solved by what is called molecular dynamics problems, atomic simulations. And these atomic simulations typically the single time steps are between femtoseconds and picoseconds. That is 10 to the power of minus 15 and 10 to the power of minus 12 seconds. And traditionally, using a traditional supercomputer, we could run these simulations maybe up to nanoseconds or maybe even microseconds if you stretch them. But what D.E. Shaw and research has been able to do is to push it actually into milliseconds and seconds, which is much closer to the actual time the protein takes to fold or conform. So there's one particular example in which this code design is able to solve the problem. Now, the the challenge in this is, this is being done by somebody who has the resources to be able to do that. Not everybody may have the resources that a research organization like D.E. Shaw would. The other example is cloud computing. In order to do cloud computing, specifically, if you want to do machine learning and artificial intelligence, generally those type of applications tend to be data-centric. So if you were to essentially design an architecture which are exclusively for solving data-centric problems, then your focus will be on how much storage it has, how much memory it has, how fast can I access them. In fact, data access and data analytics is another example in which this co-design tree in which... The end users are driving what will come out. So these two examples are good examples, but they are still, I would say, niche in the sense it is not publicly available to the end users like all of us, right? If I want to solve a specific problem, let's say the next generation of lithium battery or what comes after a lithium battery, then I will not be able to put together a design, the so called co design tree, for my application unless I have the resources to do it. So, in a way, what we are saying by co design tree is why not scale this paradigm so that it's cost effective, so that every application can essentially drive what the design that is needed for that specific application is? Why not make application a key part of the design itself rather than wait for the design to be complete and then try to run your application on a given design. Uh,
0: What kind of response have you gotten from hardware people, from application designers? Um, What do they think of this idea? What kind of response? So uh, almost everyone I have talked to says this is a fantastic idea.
1: I have gotten incredible support, including from Department of Energy whoever I have talked to. One way of looking at this is this is an ultimate personalization of a supercomputer. In principle, in principle, all 7 billion of us, the number of humans, should be able to personalize the supercomputer for my application. I mean, whether it happens in reality or not is another question. In principle, nothing should stop us. But so This co design tree, in order for it to become reality on a wider scale, it should be cost effective. It shouldn't be done by only the big players with a lot of resources. It should be done by off the shelf components when you can, but the design, the algorithms, and the software should be developed in a way that you get the maximum performance for the problem you are solving. A person solving a cancer bioinformatics problem may need a different combination of these components than a person solving weather predictions, than a person who is trying to solve the air drag around a new aircraft. All of them may need different components to be put together differently. So this is this has gotten very good reception. Now, the thing that we wanted to be even more disruptive is it should be done in a cost-effective manner. And I shouldn't have to wait six to seven years for the next generation computing to come in. So in my talk, what I am trying to show is there are about six different scales or scaling paradigms, as I call them, which essentially looks at different scalings, Moore's law being the most known form of scaling, but there are other scales and scalings. Can we essentially try to bring them all together in this co-design 3.0? Here, I think the academics, the universities have to play a critical role because a lot of these things are in the research component. Hardware manufacturers, whoever I have talked to, have been very interested in it. We are hoping that we will have a meeting in the near future, within the next six months or so, in which we will get all the key stakeholders, including federal government and national labs in one place, where we could discuss of what needs to be done and how can we, universities, industry, the federal government and state governments, how can we essentially come together to solve something like this problem?
0: that's interesting that you brought up Moore's Law and how it doesn't seem like we're keeping up with Moore's Law anymore. We're running into some um, slowdowns um, with that kind of growth. And you talked about scaling paradigms. Um, You know, just for the benefit of people listening, would you mind describing that, what these scaling paradigms are and how they relate to co-design 3.0? Sure. Let me kind of
1: spend a few seconds trying to talk about the Moore's law itself that you just mentioned in the passing. The Moore's law is essentially a hardware scaling law. So every two years or 18 months, depending on who you talk to, you get the next generation hardware with twice as many computing units. You could call them transistors or information processing engines in the same area every certain fixed time so that is just the hardware but the software never used to follow the moore's law closely for example let us say i have an application and i run it on generation n moore's law computer after two years let's say i get generation n plus one and i try to run the same application I'm not able to turn around the application generally twice as fast. Why is that? That is because the software was not necessarily scaling at the same pace as Moore's Law, even though it scaled close to it. So in a way, the Moore's Law, we are close to its 50th anniversary now. Everyone else has been riding free on this hardware progress called Moore's Law. And what we are saying is it is not just the hardware. The rest of the things need to kind of do their jobs, due diligence as well. That's what we are trying to say. So now, uh, coming back to your question of the six scaling paradigms, which I will go through in my talk, uh, they are roughly as follows. If you look at the scale of physical and man-made entities that we design that has made our life a lot more easier in the 21st century, they run a scale of like 10 to 16 orders of magnitude. So that is one scale. The second scale is the way in which we can put together the materials to make a new material, or let us take a drug. How many organic molecules can we put together to make a drug? That scales by a power law called combinatorial scaling which means, for example, there are 10 to the power 60 organic molecules. So if I were to make a drug in principle, I'm looking at some number which is much bigger scaling than anything. So clearly, just using the computer scaling, which is 50 years of scaling, in itself will not let me solve a problem in which I need to be able to look at a combinatorial possibilities of 10 to the power 50, 10 to the power 60. That would be the second scaling. The third thing is the scaling of algorithms. The algorithm scaling have not been, as I mentioned a little bit previously in connection with Moore's law, they have not been scaling independent of Moore's law. In other words, they have been just riding on Moore's law, piggybacking on it. So what we are saying is the algorithms now should have their own scaling laws of how they could scale faster. And I will show examples of how they scale. Then the fourth one is technology scaling, which we talked about, which is Moore's law. And the fifth one is the economics of scaling. It is not sufficient to scale, but the cost shouldn't scale. If the costs scale, then the solutions are not really practical. Then the last is the application scaling. If the computers are scaling, if the algorithms are scaling, then are we able to solve bigger and bigger problems every two years? Do they scale by some law? So those are the points I want to bring together and saying, making just a conjecture or more like a challenge to all of us. Can we make code design address all the scaling in addition to Moore's law?
0: You're going to be presenting your talk at the Supercomputing Conference, SC16. This is a gathering of people in the high-performance computing community. Would you speak to um, a little bit about high-performance computing, what role that plays in this um, paradigmus or this um, this way of thinking about things of like, uh, co-design 3.0? Right. So, high-performance computing, actually, if you look at the
1: leading mainframe computers and you can go back to 60s or even before the advent of, I mean, or just around the advent of Moore's law, the high-performance computing has been always driving the high-end of applications. You know, they are like the Ferraris or the high-end cars. There are a few niche applications which essentially can be was driven by high-performance computing. So they are the biggest problem, the largest problem, that you could ever solve anywhere was driven by high-performance computing. So high-performance computing defined the boundaries of what we could do at a given time. And they used to be mainly in the realm of mainframe computers and large supercomputer hardware uh, manufacturers for a long time. But what is essentially happening now is that the same high-performance computing is now switching to the cloud and is being scaled as more discrete computers all put together in a cluster. And that is changing some of what we used to call high-performance computing. Now it is becoming much more widely available. For example, you could run what were considered very complex scientific jobs in an Amazon cloud now. You could buy it, and storage is nearly cost-free. So in a way, the high-performance computing is starting to get to the masses. So what we are trying to say is, although it is getting to the masses, it probably needs a little bit of a holistic thought process that high-performance computing shouldn't be only at the boundary Everybody should be able to put their own high-performance computing. So in a way, we are saying that can you individualize the high-performance computing for your needs, which may be different than, you know, if you go to the next university or to the next small startup, can they put together their own design and their own high-end architecture and their own algorithms to have? a high-performance computer that is mainly suitable for that. In a way, we are saying everything should become high-performance computing, not at the far end.
0: Dr. Shank, I really appreciate you taking this time out to speak with us. Um, this is my last question. Thanks so much. Um, what's the most important thing that you want people to know about co-design code
1: 3.0? Take-home message. We want to see what will make high-performance computing personalizable. And how can we train the upcoming workforce on different aspects of all the components? That is architecture, hardware, algorithms, and software. This is why I think universities play an important role in this as much as the national labs have been playing on high-performance computing. So we want to be able to solve the real problems, right? Cancer cure personalized medicine, new battery materials, or new catalysts, or eliminate toxic materials. So can we essentially do them faster? The computing have brought us very far, but can we take it even farther? That's the question that we should ask ourselves.
0: You've been listening to Sadasivan Shankar of Harvard University. From SC, the International Conference for High-Performance Computing, Networking, Storage, and Analysis, I'm Jorge Salazar.